Hi, welcome to Remote Controlled, Variety's TV podcast. I'm Deborah Birnbaum, Executive Editor of TV. Every week, we'll bring you conversations with some of the best and brightest in television, working behind and in front of the camera. On this week's episode, we're talking to David Harbour, the star of Stranger Things, the hit series on Netflix. So stay tuned. Hi, I'm Deborah Birnbaum, executive editor of TV at Variety. And I'm Michael Schneider, editor-at-large at Variety. And it's our pleasure to welcome David Harbour of Stranger Things. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Sure. Thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. Yeah, absolutely. So Stranger Things has been quite the phenomenon. Yeah, people seem to really like it. It's a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> has it sunk in at all yet? Has it what? Sunk in at all. Uh, yes, yeah. I mean, the first uh, the first few weeks were really kind of overwhelming, but then, you know, you sort of adapt to things very quickly, and uh, and it, for me, it's really all still about the work, and so I'm kind of anxious to get into season two, and anxious to get back to the character and stuff like that, and uh, the success of it has been a lot of fun. Uh, you know, I don't take away from that, but it's uh, you know, I'm just raring to go again. I just want to get back into the story. Well, as someone who's a working actor and, and who's done a ton through the years, I mean, your IMDb page is very lengthy. <laughs> uh, you've, uh, you've, you've worked on so many projects, but what, what made the reaction to this one different? And what's, what's been your life like? What's the whirlwind <laughs> been like since uh, Stranger Things became such a phenomenon? I mean, it's been, you know, I've done a lot of work that no one has cared about. I mean, not, not to say it hasn't been like good work, but I just, uh, it was very different, this response. I mean, yeah. you know, I sort of, you have, in, you have uh, your telephone. My telephone has about like 100 numbers in it, probably, of which I have like 10 or 15 at most friends that I text with all the time or parents or whatever. And strange, and you know, when a movie will come out, like occasionally you'll get texts from your friends, you'll get the occasional text from some random person. And this literally, Stranger Things came out and then about two weeks later every single number of my phone I had a text from like the guy who drove me like six years ago to a thing and yeah. he still had my number and and so my phone just like lit up with people and I was like well we've really touched people in a different way like I've touched people in a different way with this work than I have before did you have any sense when you were making this what a phenomenon it was going to become I mean that's the danger Every project I've been on where we've thought it was going to be a phenomenon, it usually winds up being a disaster. And like the fact that you know you're making a phenomenon is like the kiss of death. And I think we were making this. We were scared. Uh, we were humbled. We were in Atlanta. We were sort of away from everybody. We were all kind of miserable. Um, and I think that we were humbled before the task. And I've done enough projects and enough projects that have had, you know, like, oh, this is going to be the one for you, that it's it sort of like... You know, I don't really care anymore. I just want to tell a beautiful story, and I just want to do a good job. And so I think that that humility was sort of what allowed it to be, allowed it to not have a narcissism. Like I feel like a lot of work, even if it's good work, it carries with it a sort of sort of air of narcissism or an air of like, even when it's something good, it carries it with an air of like them patting themselves on the back after takes, and you smell that, and you kind of get a little annoyed. And this, I don't think, has any of that. It just has an earnest desire to really move people with a story. And so we really had no idea. I mean, we were scared when it came out. And then also, I was in New York, and there were no ads. Like, I didn't see any ads on buses. I didn't see any ads in phone booths. 
and I was like, "Whoa, Netflix is burying this. It's terrible." And no one. And then it became this word of mouth phenomenon, and uh, I think that's so much better because there was no hype and no one was forcing it down people's throats to watch it, and people just discovered it, and it has a more personal feel, and that's beautiful. Yeah, so you, you what, get the. I was, I was going to say you, you get the feeling that Netflix didn't even know what they had. <laughs> I think that's true. I mean, I I think that's true. You know, I certainly know from the branding and marketing standpoint. I think they would have liked to have been a little more on the ball in terms of, you know, all the fan art that's coming out. There's like people making T-shirts and coffee cups and action figures. People are making it like. Um, and Netflix isn't involved in any of this, and I think they would have liked to have been because the characters are so iconic, and the show itself has such a great art feel to it that fans are creating this stuff, and I think, I hope, making money on it, and I don't think Netflix is seeing any of that. But yeah, I they thought it was good, and you know, the guys would come down to Atlanta once every month or two months, and they would just be so happy, and they would just be like, it's great, it's great, and you know, very few notes. And so I think they believed in it, but I don't think that anyone thought it would have this kind of impact. What was it about it that you think audiences responded to so much? It's a good question. Um, I think that, first of all, it has a really broad appeal because your 15-year-old kid can watch it and then your 70-year-old grandmother can watch it too. Like, it's And it's a, it's a story... I mean, to me, what I think is so beautiful about it, and I don't know if this is its appeal or not, is that it has the feeling of the magic of the movies, that we used to go to the movies in the 80s, and and you'd hear that phrase, the magic of the movies, when you talk about old Spielberg movies. or, And now I feel like... I feel like movies are in a different place, or maybe, or maybe it's just because I'm older. But I don't feel that magical. You get your popcorn, you sit down, you're ready to be transported. And I feel like Stranger Things really does that. Like, it really has a magical feel to it and part of that is its clunkiness I mean it's not as slick the even our performances are not as slick you know we're and and our characters are not certainly not slick they don't make the right decisions I mean certainly Hopper is you know he's like a messed up dude like he's not your classic leading man and so but I think people want that now I think they're kind of tired of this perfection that I think they see in the movies and they want more people that are you know really messed up sort of taking heroic actions that's that's kind of my take on it well there's a lack of cynicism in the show as well and and Hopper is an interesting character and it must have been interesting when you first read for it Uh, you know this is a character that you know could be crusty could be sort of a a foil for these boys but ends up really sort of embracing this and and quickly you're right becomes a hero was what was it about this character that appealed to you I mean you know it it really was that it's those 80s leading men and even I say late 70s because I I sort of modeled him a little bit on like Jack Nicholson from Five Easy Pieces and there are these iconic performances that I loved Um, and he really has that 80s uh, man quality that Harrison Ford and Gene Hackman and Jack Nicholson all sort of had of that time and I love those guys and they're not as popular nowadays and and I, but I love, those are the guys I grew up with. And those are sort of the guys who, you know, taught me what it was to be a man. Um, and they're guys that are, you know, what I really like about him is he loses his daughter five years ago when she's five years old. And he's not sad when we meet him. 
Like, I think the condescending choice would be to make him sad, right? But he's sarcastic and he's funny. He's developed a shtick and a way to live. And I think that kind of complexity to our characters and that kind of non-condescension in terms of how someone would be five years in the future from that kind of tragedy is sophisticated writing. And I, I don't often see that. A lot of things, a lot of times you'll see things that are on the nose. And I think that he was very, he sneaks up on you. And it's all earned. But like, you know, in the beginning, he's kind of a jerk. And then he does become this badass at the end. But it, it, and it is all earned, but it sneaks up on you too. It's very sophisticated. Talk about working with Monona Ryder. What was that experience like for you? <laughs> She's amazing. I mean, like, you know, I was super psyched because uh, she was like, I mean, I was so in love with her when I was in high school or whatever. I think, you know, Heather's probably came out when I was like in high school because um, she was a, you know, we're almost the same age. I mean, she was a big star when, like, I was in high school. So, like, and she was so beautiful and so funny and such a great actress. So I was very excited to just work with her and be with her. And then I found her to be, like, again, it's this thing where I I would ask her, because she's so good, but it's so seamless, and it's so kind of, you don't see any of, like, with me, in terms of my process, like you'll see a lot of the, at least off camera, you'll see a lot of the seams. Like you'll see that I have to get ready for a scene. You'll see that I have to be quiet or I have to prepare myself or sometimes do some relaxation. There's all this like technique that I have developed that I have to use. And with her, like it's just, it's just there. And so I don't, I would ask her like, you know, I would be like, do you have a pro like, do you have a process? And she would be like, oh, yeah, I have a but it's so sort of intrinsic to who she is that she's just like, she's just very in it the whole time. I think she just kind of lives it. And so it was very like, she's like a live wire. Like she's very, um, she's just a very strong person. She's willing to speak her mind, like willing to be herself, uh, very emotional and very willing to get personal. And that's what I loved, was like she really was able to see me as a human being. And I think so often in our society, we choose to dismiss or ignore people if we see things that we don't like or, or we'll be have nice to them, we'll say nice to meet you and we'll move on. And I think that what we created in that was very personal and I think it required us being personal with each other and sort of seeing each other in, in a whole way. And that was, it was kind of frightening and wonderful to have to be seen by her. She's very perceptive. And what was your take on the Duffer brothers? Uh, <laughs> you know, these these are guys who are you know are fairly new to to, to the business, but uh, you know came on strong. And, and obviously, you know, this is a huge sort of signature project for them now. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're like, and I don't use this word lightly because I I hate people that throw it around. Although I, it is going to seem like I'm throwing it around, but I do think they're geniuses. Like I think that they're little nerdy geniuses they hate when i call them nerds yeah. but i but they really they really are they're these i call them little too they're 30 what 30 31 something like that twin brothers um but they uh they just have you know as you say there's this earnestness to it and they have big hearts and they don't but they don't wear them on their sleeve like they're they're interested in making cool stuff and and they're very casual and they we didn't we got very few notes the whole time they let people do their thing but the whole time I felt like, and especially seeing it, that there's some kind of real method to their madness. Now, it's funny, like going in, um, I had heard, you know, I was excited. Like it was my 
big kind of chance. It was like Netflix leading Netflix series. Like, uh, and I and I talked. There's some people who, you know, were saying to me like, "Oh, the Duffer Brothers. Like, you know, they don't they don't know how to make films or blah blah blah." And I was really, I was really like, "Oh no!" Like these kids who I believe so much in. Like, now it's going to be horrible. And then. You know, so the whole time you're riding on faith and you have moments throughout the process where you're like, you know, you're just, you're just, the, it's just you guys for like five months. And so throughout the process, you're like, maybe this is terrible. Maybe these guys don't know what they're doing. And like, to, and then to see it all come together at the end was like, it just blew me away. And it was way beyond what I thought good could be. Like, I thought at the best version we were making, let's say, a seven. And then when I saw it, I was like, whoa, this is a 10. Like, this is way beyond what I thought we were making. And that's the mark of, you know, I consider myself a pretty smart dude. <laughs> and, like, and like, they just outsmart me at every turn. And so, yeah, I'm sort of in awe of them. I think another thing that this series rests on is the performance of the kids. They were just mm-hmm. amazing. And especially Millie <laughs> yeah. Bobby Brown. I mean, mm-hmm. how do you even keep up with those kids? Yeah, it's a good question. <laughs> I know, it's like so horrible. It's like you work your whole life to finally give a performance and then this 11-year-old child comes in and like, or these 11-year-old children come in and are like just as great. Um, yeah, they, you know, they're wonderful. Like the great thing about them is also, you know, is that they're actually like kids. I mean, they're all accomplished actors, like Gaten and Caleb have done Broadway, and Millie's done a bunch of TV, and so they've all done a bunch of stuff, but they maintain this quality of, like, they're still, like, little 12-year-olds on set. And so you know what it's like hanging out with 12-year-olds. It's like, you know, they can't quite focus. Sometimes they're hitting each other. Their bodies are making noises and sounds that you don't. (laughs) So, like, you know, a lot of that was going on. But to capture it on film is what makes the series so unique. And it's also what makes the Duffer Brothers so unique because a lot of times people will try to control things or they'll try to, you know, get really... And I think they were hands-off enough with the kids and just sort of let them create these moments. And that's what makes the kids even better. I mean, it's what makes all of us able to do our work. Like, I think the kids are great. I think Winona's great. I think I'm great. But I don't think that we could have done the work that we did without those guys shepherding us in a very gentle way. And so with the kids, like, they really allowed them to be kids. And that's what shows up on the screen. It's terrific. So, uh, you know, you mentioned a little bit about uh, what this has meant for you. But but honestly, uh, how has this changed? Are you recognized more on the street now? Yeah. Does everyone scream hopper at you? <laughs> um, what was your life like as an actor up until now, uh, you know, and, and sort of as a working actor versus yeah. now? I mean, my life up until now was like once, maybe, you know, I live in New York. So I walk the streets and I see lots of people. And it had been like maybe once a week. Um, someone will come up to me or just go like, I love your work, man, you know, and walk on past. And, uh, or if I had a movie out like that week, it would be like maybe once a day. And this came out and it's like I'm Tom Cruise. Like <laughs> I've never seen anything like it. Like I can't walk down the street. Like I walk down the street and people just like point and stare and people are really moved by the show. You know, I don't... Uh, yeah, they're really moved by the show, and they and they wanna, you know. And I think the thing with television, of course, is like you identify, and you know that character's in your bedroom with you, like now on your laptop, like lying in bed watching the show, and so they feel a real closeness to me. So, 
a lot of people touch me a lot, which is strange. <laughs> <laughs> they come up and they're like very grabby with me because yeah. I'm a big guy. And I guess it's like, it's a little weird though. Um, they want to give Hopper a hug. They do. They, exactly. He's a, you know, he's a grumpy dude. Like he needs, <laughs> he needs love. He needs yeah. love. He needs love. And they, they're there to provide it. I'll tell you that. But, um, but yeah, it's been very different. And like with all the good that comes of that and, you know, like people give me free croissants at coffee shops, <laughs> which is like, you know, the one time in my career I can actually pay for the croissant. Now I'm getting it for free. But uh, they, you know, they do that. And then and then also it can get a little bit overwhelming and you just want to be, you know, I feel a little uh, like I just sometimes want to be a jerk or like I just want you know I want to be a slob or whatever and then you know some guy cuts you off and you want to yell at him and then he's like hey man I love you on the show and you're like oh no I can't yell at that guy can't, can't do that anymore <laughs> exactly so there seems to be a big debate online whether Hopper is Han Solo or Lando Calrissian <laughs> where, where do you come down on that one is that a debate I love that I mean I mean, for my money, he's Han Solo. You know what I mean? I love him so much. But you're right. I mean, the kids call him Lando. And I guess Lando sort of does a good thing in the end. But, you know, when we were sculpting him, like the Duffers and I were talking about him, we talked a lot about scenes from Empire Strikes Back. And we talked a lot about scenes from Indiana Jones and these iconic, you know. I mean, one of the great moments to me in the piece is when... uh, I love the moment when I'm trying to get in the morgue and the guy goes, you know, like, I don't work for O'Bannon. And I'm like, does he O'Bannon? I'm in, uh, and I just, I just punch him, you know? And uh, there's a moment in Indiana Jones when the guy comes out with a sword and he swings it around Indy and just pulls out his gun and shoots him. And, like, that's the sort of swashbuckling thing that we wanted from him. Um, and the Han Solo thing, which we never... We didn't really get a chance to explore in season one, which I hope we're going to explore more in season two is I love, you know, Han's relationship with Princess Leia. And I think that Winona and I have some of that uh, chemistry of just these people that kind of can't stand each other but are bound together in this common purpose. But um, I wanted a moment, and it was funny, like there was a moment when Hopper went in alone to the Rift and Joyce stayed out and it was kind of going to, but then it was like impossible. Like Joyce has to go. It's her child. She has to go in. But I always wanted this kind of moment when I, I wanted this, I want this moment. I still want this moment with Joyce where Hopper, um, you know, as much as he can't stand her, still believes that her life with her child is worth more than his. And, uh, you know, but he won't say, you know, he. it's that classic scene where, Leia says I love you and he says I know <laughs> you know but it's that I, I love I love scenes like that with kind of shut down men but with you know who really care but just can't express or even really know what they feel like I love characters I think nowadays we're so in touch with our emotions like um, and I miss those guys who don't even understand what they feel and they just act and that's what I feel like Hopper is like he doesn't know that he cares about Joyce he just feels like you gotta save the kid, and I. Um, so uh, yeah, that's why I love him. And I'm hoping for a little more of that in season two. But uh, for my money, he's Han Solo. For my money, he's Han Solo. So how how much do you know about season two? Uh, <laughs> oh, no, what, oh no! Not not asking to give spoilers, <laughs> but uh, you know what, what what can you say in terms of uh, you know in talking to the Duffers? Uh, uh, you know 
how far along I mean, are things? Well, yeah, we're working. I think we go into production like end of October, early November, hopefully. Um, and I know they have the whole thing mapped out. Um, it'll be nine episodes. Uh, you saw the titles in that little YouTube video. Um, right. It'll be nine episodes this year. They have the whole thing mapped out. I know they have a couple of them written already. Um, and I'm going to go in and talk to them next week and demand that I know everything because... <laughs> One of the great things about season one was that I had the whole I had the whole arc. I had six episodes written before we started shooting, and then seven and eight, I knew exactly what he did, and so I was able to craft the role that way. And I think it's the uh, the reason why I think my work is different and more complex than this is because I had the whole thing. And I think a lot of times, you know, with television, but even now with movies, they don't want you to read the whole script or they want you to. And I. I think it's really a detriment to people that have a process. Like there are actors that can just sort of go on, just do things and say things and it works. But I really have a process, like like a writer sits down at a, at a keyboard and has to think and then go get a cup of coffee and then come back and, uh, and they work it out. And my way is the same way as an actor. Like I have a story and then I sort of try to create my way into that story and how I'm going to personalize it and how I'm going to give you reasons. Even if you may not know exactly what they are, you're going to see motivations for this character in terms of like who he is underneath all this dialogue or action, like who he really is and the secrets that that comes along with him, like um, the little details. So hopefully I'll know the whole thing. I do know that I th it's going to be a year in the future, so it'll uh, act more like a sequel. I know that they've talked about being inspired by Empire Strikes Back, um, which is, you know, if you interpret that, again, like, I don't know, so I'm speculating, yeah. so I'm allowed to speculate. Yeah, exactly. But if you interpret that, which is kind of interesting, is like Star Wars kind of ends the, ends the story. Like, they destroy the Death Star, right? Star Wars is done. And so the Empire Strikes Back is like, now you have, the empire striking back and it's like two you know it's like 20 fold like now they're 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 screwed so i feel like that will be maybe what hawkins indiana is dealing with is like this entity of the upside down has been messed with in a certain way a child has been saved i mean joyce and hopper went in and came out um and what is that entity feel about that is there some kind of reaction in the world i mean there's this slug that kind of goes down a drain at the end of the thing i mean is there some kind of reaction in the world that is a year later now magnified and these guys have to come up against a greater force and that's my hope and i've heard that it's going to be darker and weirder because i think one of the temptations was now you have kind of a hot property on your hands it's like let's just Let's just have the kids ride around on bikes. Let's have let's have Hopper say coffee and contemplation a bunch of times, and like, right, right. And, 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 and find a way to bring Barb back. He's right. got to bring Barb back immediately. Barb must come back. Yeah, exactly. Barb walking around the halls, yeah. and I think that the Duffers were like, "No, let's throw it all out, and let's take the risk that we took in season one to even greater degree. And if we fail, we fail. And if you hate it, you hate it. But like, we gotta do that. Otherwise, we're not going to do justice to what you loved. But Hopper did leave some egos in the woods. Yeah, I, I mean, I will, I will say I'm pretty sure that Eleven's coming back. Like, you can't, or some form of her, right? Like, I, I know that Millie will be involved in season two, so I don't know exactly what Eleven is now, now that she's sort of dissolved, but I do know that that character's so iconic that you, you have to. And there's also an interesting story to be explored around Hopper's 
you know, Hopper leaving her egos, right? So Hopper had lost a daughter that would have been around Eleven's age. And so there's a surrogate parent there thing. Too. Exactly. <laughs> and then there's also her looking for a papa, this guy that manipulated her, you know, and, and so she needs a father figure in some sense. So I think we could really explore that story of like these two, you know, both very messed up individuals. I mean, she has superpowers and kills people and he's just, you know, he's all messed up as well. And like, how do those two characters maybe come together and find some sort of redemption? It could be interesting. And how much more will we, how much deeper will we get into Hopper's backstory? How much can we trust of what he's already told us? Great question. That's a great question. Um, I hope that we get into a lot. I have, I have a lot of secrets and things that I used um, that I don't want to get into too much. <laughs> but, I, but I will say that the timeline is interesting, right? Like, and even politically, the timeline is interesting. Like, it's 1983, right? So Hopper was born in 43. Because uh, if he's 40 in 83, which is mm-hmm. what we've conceived. So theoretically, if he went off and became a cop, theoretically, he could have gone to Vietnam. Like, there's lots of things that we can bring in now with the, because we start to explore the MK Ultra program. We start to explore, and we can start to explore him being a big city cop and whatever that was. And then also, you know, possibly this Vietnam thing, which uh, I'm interested in. But, uh, you know, there's a lot to explore there. And there's a lot of, uh, you know, secrets that we've discussed that I don't know how much we're going to, do in season two but there's a lot more going on with his daughter that you haven't seen um and there's certainly a lot more going on with him in terms of like him getting in the car at the end and like what he know and him being a big city cop like what that was and what that is there's a lot of complexity there that you know i i when i will say we're not going to hide stuff from you like i don't want you to worry like the duffers have assured me and this is what i love is that some people have been saying to them like you guys have too much story for season two, like space it out over three or four seasons. And they're like, no, no, we're gonna swing for the fences. So we're gonna give you like a ton of story. And a lot of that will involve, you know, secrets from Hopper's past. Wow, we're uh, <laughs> ready for the big ride. So <laughs> what uh, what else is, what's up next for you? Um, I don't know, you know. I, I mean, I was doing some plays in New York um, and then, you know, this came out and, the landscape has changed and uh, I, I'm going to go back and shoot season two and then I'm sort of talking about various projects but I'm at if finally in my career I'm able to be really choosy like jobs that I'm being offered now that I would have died to play a year ago uh, I'm sort of turning down now because I want because I think the stories that I you know so, so rarely as an actor do you, are you in a position to define the story that you want to tell. But I feel like stories like Stranger Things that have real humanity to them, but not humanity. They're still big popcorn things, like things with a monster in them. But they have a feel to like broken guys and guys that really do struggle and guys that aren't in perfect shape and aren't like superheroes. You know, and I want to play those guys. I want to see those guys on screen. I want those guys to be represented. I want, you know, you to go to the theater and be like, oh, yeah, I'm a schlub like that, like me. And go to, you know, be like, I'm a schlub like that, but also I can take a heroic action and save a kid. And, and I feel like that's what I want from my stories. And so, 
I'm going to be really choosy. And we'll see. Like, I, you know, I, I'll get out of production a, a season two around April. And then hopefully I'll have something lined up. But I'd love to do, like, a really great movie. I'd love to do a big movie, swashbuckling movie, but with a terrifically three-dimensional leading man, which um, I don't know that, you know, I don't know that that's out there for me, but I would love to do it. Sounds great. <laughs> we'll be looking forward to it. Cool. Oh, wonderful. Thank you so much for coming. It was great to chat with you. And Thanks. best of luck. We can't wait to see what's in store for season two. Cool. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. We'll be back next week with another great guest. We have Julie Plack, the executive producer of Vampire Diaries and The Originals. This has been Remote Controlled, only on Variety. Variety.